Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome to the theater, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. My name is Rhea, and I am the producer of this program. Normally, you hear from me only when I'm giving my little scripted introductions at the top of each episode. But because this isn't a normal episode, I thought maybe it would do something a bit different for introducing it. This is the first time that we've re-released content, sort of pushing it to the top of the pile. And the reason we're doing that is because a lot has happened since we published this episode. Uh, Last June, we released what was the first of a four-part series on LGBTQ plus people in surgery. And this was an area that was quite close to my heart as a member of the LGBTQ plus community myself as a transgender person. And I was really struck when I was putting it together at first at how it was difficult to find LGBTQ plus surgeons willing to speak about their experiences on the record. And the ones that did often didn't know any other people from the community or not many. And so I had to look in some interesting places to find um, queer surgeons willing to speak on the podcast. And one of the things that became immediately apparent as we recorded these episodes was that there was a demand for some sort of network or organization for LGBTQ plus surgeons to meet and network and organize and provide community support. And it was difficult because, as I've said, many of the surgeons involved in the podcast just didn't know many other people like them in the profession. So we released the four episodes, and they turned out to be some of our most popular episodes of 2021. And in the background since then, many of the surgeons involved in the podcast, as well as some other people who stepped forward as a result of the podcasts, have been doing just that thing and laying the groundwork for an LGBTQ plus network of some sort for surgeons to come. And this is culminated in an event which is taking place here at the Royal College of Surgeons of England offices in London or virtually on the 25th of March. And there will be speakers and opportunities for networking and it will be above all, I think, an opportunity for LGBTQ plus surgeons to just simply say that we're here in the profession, not me personally, because I'm not a surgeon, but we're here. So there are tickets still available on the college website, and we're publishing this content today, republishing it, because we wanted to let you know about the event in case you hadn't heard of it through any other channels. And there are still two weeks to go before the event, and there are tickets, as I said, but also to let you know the things that have been happening in the background 
since we recorded those original episodes and what's kind of come about as a result of them, which is something that I'm really proud of. So, you know, if you've heard this episode already, I, you know, I won't be offended if, if you decide to give it a miss. That's totally fair. But if you haven't heard it, um, please keep on listening and you can go back into our catalog and find the other three episodes if you're interested and do register the, for the event if you happen to have the time uh, on the 25th of March. Thank you so much for listening, whether this is your first time stumbling across the channel or if you've been supporting us for a while. Uh, we really appreciate you tuning in. If you have any feedback or if you'd like to propose a future episode, you can get in touch with us at podcasts at rcseng.ac.uk. I would love to hear from you. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode. Episode 1 from the four-part series on LGBTQ plus people in surgery. We want as many people from as many different backgrounds as possible that represent society having um, a good experience of surgical training because they're the future at, at leading change and allowing um, fairness in. And if we don't change the process that people go through while in, in training, I don't think we'll ever get that diversity. It will just get you know, one particular mold of surgeon and we've got to break that. Hi, my name's Ginny Bobrick. I'm a vascular surgeon in Kent and tonight we are going to be discussing the issues about being LGBTQ plus and being a surgeon sort of on a review of diversity um, as an extension of the Royal College of Surgeons' work with the Kennedy Report. Um, so I'm, I'm joined by Chloe, Nick and Mark, who are going to all introduce themselves. Chloe. Hi, thanks for inviting me to be involved in this. My name's Chloe Scott. I'm a hip and knee consultant in Edinburgh. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm an out surgeon, I suppose. I've been, I, I've tried to do some of these diversity projects before, so I'm grateful to have been invited. Thank you very much. And also because you're from the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, so it's really good to stretch across the, um, to the north. Absolutely increasing diversity. Um, Mark. So my name is Mark Bagnall. I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon in Chesterfield. I have been out since medical school. Um, and um, I'd just really like to thank you for the opportunity to um, uh, try and improve the um, visibility and the support for surgeons in training. Hi, I'm Nick Ferran. I'm a consultant shoulder and elbow surgeon in London, uh, Norfolk Park Hospital. Uh, I'm an Edinburgh fellow as well, so yes, increasing diversity in that way. <laughs> um, well, and equality by having two Edinburgh fellows and two two England fellows, so that's perfect. Well, I was an Edinburgh MRCS and an English FRCS, so I'm I'm by. <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess the best place to start is with the start of everyone's journey um, and discussing where, where we, we all started in medicine. So I've had some good experiences. Um, so I've been out since medical school. That was a conscious choice to, um, rightly or wrongly, I just decided that the safest thing for me was to um, try and keep my sense of integrity um, and not try to conform to the mould of the, the, the archetypal surgeon. Um, and I'm pleased to say that I did have some really positive role models. Um, there was some of that banter that was going on in the coffee room in theatre. And it was low level. It wasn't anything too offensive. It was just, but it was it was going on as background noise. And my consultant um, at the time uh, was really good. He just went over and said, can I just stop you, please? Um, what you're saying is inappropriate. You know, it's it's offensive. This is the, you know, 21st century. Please, you know, can you stop that now? And it was a tiny gesture. And, but it made me feel, actually, there are people out there who um, are trying to affect change and are recognising that uh, this sort of culture is not appropriate anymore. So there are pockets of good people willing to step up and be allies. And I think that's really positive. Conversely, there is, I think, now an undercurrent of more clandestine or, or more overt behaviour, sorry, covert behaviour rather than obvious. And that's much harder to, to address. Certainly, I think the, the fact that um, in most sections of society, homophobia and sexism and racism are, are all completely socially unacceptable. Um, it has somewhat driven people that do have those opinions um, to be more covert about them but they're still they still exist and they clearly do still exist in surgery because some every so often they do come to the come to the fore um as the kennedy report and uh, and other things have, have shown um similar to mark i i came out before medical school and so i was always out um as a medical student and out in in my um in my jobs as a junior doctor and as an orthopaedic trainee. Um, and I think it's um, it's one thing to come out once, but, but I think medical training and surgical training yeah, is a bit different to having other jobs because you move around so often, you work with so many different teams and you find that you're actually you're having to come out every six months and, um, and, and different rotations require you to do that with different amount of frequency and I was quite lucky I suppose in that the rotation I was on was quite small and everybody knew each other so um so you did kind of do it once and that was and that was it um but it is it's difficult for trainees going to departments that they don't know um they're not familiar with with a lot of the staff they don't have mentors there um and and if they're really out then they're having to come out come out over and over again and it would be nice for um just if there were a wider um visibility of lgbtq people in surgery and a wider acceptance of the issues that people face within surgery in particular then it would make it easier for for 
your trainees to do that throughout their um, training. So my greatest fear with surgery is that it's very much your training is entirely dependent on your relationship with your consultant trainer. And that is really difficult. So your consultant could do little things to withhold training opportunities if they so wish. They can say things like, oh, this one's too difficult. Um, oh, the patient asked me to do this case. Oh, we just don't have enough time to do this. Um, and has the power dynamics over you to, um, you know, give you a low assessment, uh, you know, make some comments that you have communication issues, can withhold, you know, training opportunities. And that's all it takes to knock the trainee's confidence. It's just enough to um, stop you from regressing. So I can understand why a lot of people could choose to stay in the closet rather than jeopardize that relationship and, you know, try and, um, you know, get all the training they can out. Um, and I'm particularly concerned with um, the potential for abuse at um, ARCP level. So when you're at the end of your training um, year, and I'm also particularly worried about uh, pro job progression at interview, because those are the two big concerns I've got of, yeah, you're in surgical training, but are you getting an equal opportunity to anybody that's not LGBTQ? So, so I'm like a little randomized control trial because I was in the closet for the first half of my training and came out halfway through. And I, for all the reasons, you know, you said there was concerns about coming out. And for, I guess for the first part on a rotation, especially if you, you're new to that area, you really don't know people, you're changing all the time, you're potentially having to come out not only to your boss, but to everybody you work with repeatedly. Um, and I was worried about job progression and all of that. But what I did notice actually is that surgery and surgical training is such a, um, that sort of craft specialty where you're, you know, you're an apprentice. and I only really thought I got benefit out of rotations when I was out because all the banter to try for your boss to try and get to know you, what you did this weekend, uh, you know, what do you like, things like that. I, I, I would be closed off about those conversations and want to keep it really businesslike and just talk about the patients and what does this x-ray have or whatever and never form those rapport with the, with the consultants that I w w wasn't out to. When I fully came out to people, then I, I was able to say, oh, yeah, what we did this weekend, blah, blah. Um, and I think they felt, whether they felt I was more human or not, I felt that those consultants gave me more opportunities uh, because they then trust you. They feel they know you a bit and they'll trust you with that difficult case and that kind of thing. So I think it kind of cuts both ways that, yeah, you might be personally worried about progression and what they could do to you. But equally, if you don't have a good rapport with your mentor, now that could be, you know, because you're keeping something back or just because of cultural personality clashes. If you don't have a good rapport with your consultant, that could really limit your training opportunities as well. So 
it's that weird balance and dynamic that you've got to find. And I, I've been lucky that I have never personally had negative experiences, but I have, you know, heard the toxic behaviors, the microaggressions, the little comments, all the people who've made homophobic bantery type jokes as registrar colleagues when I did come out they were like oh my god did I say anything to offend you and I was like no I wasn't offended I was just if you had you know made those comments it made me a little bit afraid about coming out they weren't directed to me but it made me worry about how you'd react to me coming out um so and they were mortified um and in the consultant job that I'm in I'm fully out and they've you know I, my partner goes to consultant dinners and things like that and there is none of that if anything whether it's whether there was any of that before I don't know but certainly when I'm around there's no visible sensation of homophobia or anything to the sort and it's either that I'm in a really good bunch or having some diversity actually makes people a little bit more considerate. I don't know. So I, I suppose my my concern is this, is that there is also a um, degree of unconscious bias. Hopefully it's unconscious. So if you're in a job interview and, uh, you know, it's down to two candidates and the, the, the interview panel isn't very diverse, and there's two candidates that are the front runners, and I can't quite put my finger on why I want my gut feeling is to go with candidate A, not B. They're very similar in you know the answers they gave, the background they've got, but I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'm going to pick candidate A. And why are you going to pick candidate A because it reflects the people that they know, yeah. It's tribalism. That abs that's absolutely fundamental to all of this. And we've already mentioned equality of opportunity. And it is really hard to excel if you're never given opportunities. And people, especially in an, what is an apprenticeship, you get to know your trainers, hopefully, very well. People reward people that they like. People reward people that remind them of themselves. Um, and that's exactly the, the problem. If there is no diversity, it's a self-perpetuating problem. Um, and I believe that all departments would benefit from diversity with more women, more out LGBTQ people, more people of colour, because then um, there is much more likely to be equality or equity of opportunity. And that helps everybody. That drives everything forward. I, I completely agree with that, Mark. So I think that what I hear you say is very different to the story that I have. Was, um, I was married, three children and divorced before I realised I was gay, which I know is quite unusual, but that's what happened to me. So I was a consultant by that stage when I came out. And I was really treated didn't, well, unless things were said behind my back, I didn't hear anything very negative. Um, to be honest, they, people were gossiping because they saw things on my social media. So I just came out on my social media and said, by the way, I'm gay. And I was the hospital gossip for a few days and then everyone moved on to the next thing. And for me, it's been more about when I've had trainees, actually, trainees of, who have been hiding it, feel that they can confide in me and come out and talk to me. And they feel safe in that environment because I've kind of like the few people I've just come out with and said, Are you gay? And you know, you're not telling me. And they felt safe to tell me. But then they expressed their their feelings that they can't be open anywhere else. 
um, which I think is really sad. So I think the only thing I can do is to be um, out. I don't go walking down the hospital corridor trailing a rainbow flag behind me. You know, it's it's who I am. It's as much as being a female surgeon as being a gay surgeon. But it's the visibility to give other people that strength. So that was why I was happy to talk to the panel for the Equality and Diversity with, um, report with uh, Baroness Kennedy. And I was very happy to to go and do that and actually went on to Twitter and asked people for anecdotes, tell me, because actually I've been lucky and my experiences on the whole have been very positive. Um, and people did come and tell me things. Mark was one of them, giving me experiences so that I could take those to the panel and they were used as quotes in the report. But there's no evidence out there. You know, as I said to the panel, there's so many papers on being female or by ethnicity, but there's this stunning silence about the implications of being LGBT and not only being in surgery, but being in medicine on the whole. There's the BMA paper, you know, that, that gives you the quote that 70% of, of gay medics have, have had some form of abuse in the last two years. But that's quite an old, it's, it's like 2015. And there's no recent um, literature. And I think that's why one of the action points from the report was to take on and do more research, because there isn't the evidence out there. So they don't know, they don't know the, the, the amount of the problem that there is because nobody's looked at it and we all have to be visible to make it easier for those coming behind us is my view absolutely i mean i've got two um trainees uh, who are both lgbtq and um it it's been very interesting to sort of see it from their perspective they're still sort of navigating through the just the how do you you know, acquire all the competencies. How do you manage your life? How do you do all these things? And I'm trying to, you know, obviously give some guidance if I can, but I, it, it does give me a, a nice heartwarming feeling that there are more out people um, in surgery and hopefully, you know, able to change things. Um, so that's that's really positive in my mind. And uh, Ginny, you were saying about how visibility for staff um i'm obviously on twitter as well and and i'm you know quite open about who i am i'm married i've got a husband and it was very interesting that a patient approached me in clinic have looked me up and said well actually i'm also gay and i've got some uh you know medical issues and felt more open to talk to me um you know and i was very happy to do that well, I've got on my lanyard, I mean, I, I sort of collect like badges on my lanyard. I've got my rainbow badge and I've got, but I've got a pronoun one, she, her. And I've had patients say to me how much they appreciate seeing that I've got that she, her. But it's the education because then other people who ask me, why have I got it? What's it about? I've got it on my signature on my emails. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, to make, I, I just, I'm not trying to stand and, and, make a big thing about it but I think education is important uh and to do that and explain why it is and, and uh, the, the rainbow campaign was brilliant and brought so much visibility for us and so much acceptance and but I sometimes wonder whether people just wanted the, the nice badge and I I have to question a little bit about that when I heard that people were going um to, and wouldn't sign the, the pledge that went with it or give the reason but they wanted the badge um, and I think it's it's getting the education as well, but it's been really good to bring um, visibility in that way. 
I, I agree completely with that. And I wear my rainbow lanyards and I've got a, I, I support diversity in orthopedics badge and a women in surgery badge on it as well. And I think um, there's no doubt that having a diverse workforce is better for patients and patients do feel um, more comfortable with you if they are LGBTQ, if they can see that you are an ally. Obviously, there are issues around the rainbow badge branding that have been brought about by the COVID kind of mm. um, adoption of it that has maybe, I hope, hasn't made it less reliable and people depend on it less than if that hadn't happened. But I think, it, I, I mean, I think we all agree that visibility is, is, is fundamental and increasing visibility because um, we've all survived in surgery you know there's something about us all that has meant that we haven't been put off by um remarks that we've heard um or experiences that we've had and we've continued in our surgical career whereas lots of people are put off at very early stages never even consider surgery as a career um because of experiences they've had at medical school or even um comments from other specialties about surgery and the problem is that if we're not actively um confronting those and proving them not to be the case anymore then um people believe them and and, and students are put off on a regular basis and that's not just lgbtq um students being put off from from surgery it's women being put off from surgery you know it's people of color being put off put off a career in surgery so um I think it's important, well, I think diversity in general is important, but for, for those of us that have survived, I think making ourselves visible to, to others um, is actually really important. It's not wanting people to pay lip service to it, saying, oh, we've got to tick every box. I mean, in theory, you know, how many boxes can Chloe and I, you know, Chloe and I can tick a couple of boxes when they're looking to have that diversity on a panel for interviews or or, or on a panel for, for a conference or something but I don't want people to have me there just because I ticked that box I want people to have me there because I've got a talent to bring to them and some knowledge to bring to them so it's just that next step that we've got to to make that 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 it doesn't actually we don't even have to talk about it although I think that at the moment there is a need for a little bit of tokenism and I say this in this way um uh, one of my society recently sent out their first diversity survey. And the LGBTQ questions were appalling. Appallingly worded. Uh, they didn't mention trans, how they handled gender. It was just off. And I was like, guys, did you get some advice on how to word these questions? Because one, you're not going to get the answers you need. And two, people trying to answer these questions might be a little bit offended or put off that you're kind of writing them out. And it wasn't just... Um, on LGBT stuff, there were some uh, ethnicity questions. So I'm from the Caribbean, and Indo-Caribbean people hate that the only thing on an ethnicity questionnaire, if you are of Asian or Indian uh, origin, is Pakistani or Indian, and they feel like they are just not seen. So having diverse people can at least help you get yourself going in that direction and I think that surgery, colleges, societies, hospitals 
are at such an early stage in grappling this that they need to have some token members there to just go, right, okay, this is how you need to start thinking about addressing this. And then they could move forward and, and create that atmosphere, if you know what I mean. If you, if you don't get people on board early on, it's going to be really difficult for those straight white men to make something diverse. They need some help. I think the power is in uh, a network of visible people that you can connect to. I think that's really powerful, um, you know, to have trainees be able to approach you, how you can actually say, um, actually, no, orthopedics is a good profession to go into. There are examples of orthopedic surgeons who are, um, you know, very supportive of diversity and actually, you know, we're challenging that. And you may have had this misconception that this is, you know, uh, a corner that you've never even considered, you know, would accept you. And I'm I'm here to prove you wrong. And until we sort of see that and um, have connections and contacts, um, you know, this this for me is this outreach process at the moment of just doing this podcast um, has introduced me to, you know, more people, you know, beyond my little circle, which is fantastic. You know, I'd love to have a network of general surgeons that I can, uh, you know, contact and go, well, I've, I've been approached by a trainee and, you, you know, they're moving to your region. You know, they've got these concerns. How are they going to be received? You know, that would be really nice for me to then turn around and go, actually, I've got contacts up there who have said, yes, of course, you know, you'll be the fifth LGBT person on the rotation. It's not a problem. You know, that would be really positive. Yeah. Yeah, I get, I, certainly there was a, an absence of consultants uh, up to a few years ago. Even now, I don't know of other openly gay consultants. Um, obviously, Chloe now is the first other orthopod that I know that's LGBT, that's open, that's out. Um, I don't know of other openly out orthopods. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 we're still scarce. I think it's, I mean, it's all well and good us talking about visibility. And I think it is, it, we do need exactly what, what Mark has described there is a, um, a network of role models, potential mentors, but just really a network um, of, of, of people within surgery who are LGBTQ. Because I think there, I mean, there's no doubt that there's more of us than anybody knows about. The issue is that not everybody wants to be the, the gay surgeon, and there are, and and even though they recognise that visibility is is key, they don't themselves want to be visible, even though they might be out within their region. And I certainly know um, quite a few people that fit that fit that mould. And when you ask them if they want to be involved in any of these things, um, the first thing they say is they don't want to be the gay surgeon. But then it's you know with gender you can't. Hide well. I suppose there was that famous um, is it James Barry hid. But you can't only hide being being a woman. You can't hide um, your ethnicity, but you can hide the sexuality. And it's one of those things that you can if you wish to. And I think there probably are more who are hiding it. And and maybe they're going to test the waters with, when they see that actually you know they'll get a positive reception. Um, and, and that's what we've got to try and, and encourage. Um, just for the, the diversity, because if you're going to, it's, it's like if you're going to choose the best people, you want to have the, the choice of everyone, not just that one niche group of the the stereotypical 
you know, white, male, heterosexual, cis, male. You want to have the, the choice of everyone and to get the best. If you say, well, actually, you are in a position to help and support the next generation, that's different from you are the visible um, you know, representative of a hospital that they're ticking a diversity box. We don't want that. I don't want to be, you know, a token gesture, you know, that the hospital has made an effort to hire somebody who's LGBTQ+. I want to be recognised that I've been hired for my skills, for how I um, uh, am as a colleague, how the patients, um, you know, um, you know, are going to benefit from, from my skills and, um, you know, my behaviour. But I also want to help people who are going through the training pathway because it's hard enough as it is. And I was mentored. I was mentored by allies. I was mentored by people who knew that I was in a gay relationship and helped me. And it wasn't, you know, I think they recognised that I had a harder uphill climb. So actually gave me really good advice. It was never directly, well, because you're gay, I really think you should do this. But recognised that I had to be more aware of the things um, that I needed to accomplish and, and, and where my avenues of support were. So that's what I really want from a network. As you say about, um, you know, being in an open relationship as a trainee, I remember um, I, <laughs> I was in a list or, again, you know, just again prepared for a list and my consultant strolled in and went, ooh, I saw you in John Lewis this weekend. And I was like, oh? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And she's like, you were with another man. And I was like, yeah, that's my boyfriend. And he's actually the radiographer just there. And she was like, you know, like mortified. And um, But she was just coming at it from a gossip thing. Like the minute it was like, oh, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And then she just carried on. But it, it, it was just so funny, the reaction and the, you know, like it was salacious. And then I was like, yeah, he's right there. And she was like, oh, shit. And, and you know, just after that was, it was just, it was never even discussed again in any kind of way. But yeah, just that was, that was one of the first people who saw me out with a man. It was funny. And I'm sure there are people where it's been done maliciously to embarrass people in front of, of colleagues or peers or think that that's going to make them appear better. Um, and I've heard of those stories as well. I mean, from my perspective, I had, I've had some foundation doctors come and they've said, oh, the first thing we heard about you when we knew we were going to be working for you was that you're gay. Um, not that whether I'm a good surgeon or a good trainer or I'm going to be fair with them. No, the first thing they're told is, by the way, she's a lesbian. And 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 that's what we need to change. That hasn't mustn't be a feature of what people are told about you. It's really interesting, Nicholas, that you said that because um, I have uh, had situations where I have been talking and I've gone you know and dropped into conversation yeah what I did at the weekend with my husband and you can see almost a level of discomfort when they start to sort of talk and go and 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 how's your partner doing oh, oh my husband yes no, he's fine and it's almost as if they're testing the water and I went this is acceptable language you can you know the, I'm legally married in the eyes of the law with the same legitimacy as your marriage. 
And yes, we still argue over who hasn't filled the dishwasher. And, you know, we do all the same things. So you're perfectly invited to use as much language as you like and get as comfortable as you like. And it's sometimes breaking that, well, I can see it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Honestly, you're not offending me. Talk, talk on, you know. And actually I've said, you know, it's interesting, your husband and wife dynamic, um, you know, I, I can reflect that... Um, I'm more personality type like your wife is in that respect, and and you're more like my husband is. Um, and it's kind of interesting to bond and just go, you know, those sort of things. But it's it's difficult to break that ice sometimes because people are a bit either a bit worried of offending, they don't quite know the language, but they want to be inclusive and be invited in. And I love that when I sort of, when it almost sort of doesn't become an issue anymore. I think our role has to be educational in that way. I mean, you know, I, I do the same. I joke, oh, gosh, I know what it's like being married to a woman and when you get the we-need-to-talk conversations, I know what it feels like to be on the other end of it. Um, and, and you just break the ice, don't you? But people want to try and make our relationships fit their relationships and, and automatically they want to say, so who's the boss? I mean, I expect you get that all the time, Chloe. Who's in charge? Who's the boss? And that sort of thing. And it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it's different but yeah. we're married and yes using the word partner instead of wife I, I, I'm like no please say wife don't say partner that's funny because I'm the opposite I think I have um, I have such connotations of what of, of what wife means I suppose and I, so I see us more of a partnership than me having a wife but that's my that's you know that's the term I use I, I say partner um, and so I suppose people reflect that back to me and that's um, and that's fine. And that's what people should be empowered to do. Right. They should reflect back to you the terms that the terms that you're using. So so our daughter is one year old now. And I've, I view that as quite a, an educational thing as well, because everyone's really just want to know how does it happen? And I, I joke and say, well, I, I obviously was more fertile than I thought I was. But, you know, it, people want to know where do you get the sperm from? And we've been really honest and, and we'll be honest with our daughter and I tell them the process. And I see that as that's an educational thing is to explaining it. Um, and I wanted to go on. I, obviously, when the baby was born, I wanted to have those two weeks off. So I trotted along to medical staffing and said, um, I want you know, my wife's having a baby. I've got the form. I want to have two weeks off. And they said, oh. Is that maternity leave? I said, well, not really. And the only way I could get the correct form was by saying it was my paternity leave. So I filled in my paternity leave form to have those two weeks with my wife after the baby was, was born. And, and the NHS forms still say paternity. They should say parental. And then I wanted to have some shared parental leave. And that was the next. So is it maternity leave? Oh, you've had paternity leave. Oh, what is this leave? And it's the NHS in that structure really needs to get its it's act together um and it comes to that's a very basic level of how to treat its staff whether you're a surgeon or a physician or a nurse or a porter and so that was me we, we got the forms off of ACAS and I was the first one to do it and it was all fine but um if you were less uh, pushy than I was you may have just been put off at the first okay I'm, I'm going away it isn't paternity leave type of thing I've had exactly the same experience because I I had maternity leave um, and then all of the questions about sperm uh, and other very personal uh, personal questions and the use of, you know, quite inappropriate language, I suppose. And um, when I was pregnant with our, our 
first daughter. Uh, but then I, I, uh, my partner had um, our subsequent children, and so then I had to have similarly. So that was interesting. <clears throat> but at least I didn't get asked so many questions about sperm. So. Saying that you're LGBTQ, it seems to be suddenly the, the walls come down to feel it's totally okay to ask some of the most personal questions about things which you really don't think they would be asking people in, in heterosexual relationships, so probably because they know how it all works. We hope they do. But they feel that that's, the doors are open. I, I'd be interested to know if it's the same for you, and uh, Mark and Nick. The doors are open to all these questions for some weird reason. Well, I would never ask a straight couple about their IVF and what they actually went through and all that. I, I, that's, that's just totally inappropriate. I'd just be like, I wouldn't even do that at a dinner party, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, human decency. And I, I'm a colorectal surgeon, so I have no filter when it comes to talking about bodily functions, uh, you know, at a dinner party. But even that crosses a line for me to sort of ask somebody, you know, how they reproduced. Is there an assumption made for you, Mark and Nick, that you wouldn't have children? Do people say that? Because that would be incorrect, of course. But uh, Well, not directly, but I've, I've had things like, oh, um, can you cover us because it's half term? or summer holidays because we're off with the kids. And it's like, well, you know, so I, I there is some of that. I don't get too much of it. I have got the over a pint questions about gay life and all of that. And and in a way I thought it was educational. I, I, I didn't I didn't take it it wasn't in the workplace anyway and it was over a pint, so it was fine. And I think that actually that helps I saw it as, look, if these guys understand and I go through all the questions with them, then if they have another gay trainee come through this place, um, they'll, you know, they, they'll know how to handle them. They'll know what life's about and they'll be fine. Um, that was on fellowship abroad and it was it was very cool. It was one of the best jobs I ever had because it was first place where I was fully out to everybody and it was, wasn't a problem at all. But um, the the assumption of not having kids only usually is an issue around holiday leave. Um, yeah, but I don't get it too much because I, I I I don't know. We don't go away during the summer holidays anyway, so, so it's, it's not a great time to go abroad if you don't have kids. <laughs> so I've never been asked by my male colleagues if I'm going to have children, but I've been asked by many female colleagues, and I think that they are trying to give me advice on on how to you know um you know balance life and you know they're very pro you know oh it's it can be done and yes i'm sure you can adopt and you you know actually we've managed to do it so you could too and i sort of said well actually i've taken a long time to become a surgeon i've i've you know done a phd and i've done two fellowships and um you know, I went in as a graduate student. So I've kind of looked at my life and I've been um, an uncle, you know, from, um, you know, my, my niece and nephew are now adults, you know. And I'm going through this process again because my husband's sister had a baby um, and now she's one and a half years old. So we get to do that all again. So, you know, we've had those questions, but um, it's difficult for me because... I'm I'm in a hospital working in a great job that's really supportive of me, but my husband is in a different city. And logistically, that just makes it 
very unlikely that we could have a family um, until we get that sorted. Can I answer that question as well, Ginny? Because it was it was massively assumed that I wouldn't have any children, um, as I am clearly a lesbian and um, <clears throat> not a very girly one. And in fact, the the only frankly homophobic comment that I'm ever aware of having received at work is um, when I you know when I was going on maternity leave uh, was. I thought we employed a lesbian so that she wouldn't take maternity leave. And I think that, that we've all just, our jaws have dropped to the ground. Oh, my God. And, yeah, um, we, need, we need video for that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That is... So it was only one, but it was a bad one. <laughs> yeah, that was... I mean, that's everything wrapped up into, into one. one. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, we hired you for the advantages, and you can't even do that. Yeah, for the what? six months that you oh. may have taken oh. off. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's impressive. Well, at least they were educated in the fact that um, that wasn't the case. Yes, exactly. That's the positive spin, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> Always try to bring a positive spin. I think you've just taken the wind out of our sails. I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't know where to take it from there. I'm afraid. So, so I suppose my big question, really, for this is: um, How do we stop this just becoming a flash in the pan? sort of it's it's got the zeitgeist of the moment but actually it's going to evaporate you know how do we make sure this is embedded and um you know substantial rather than ephemeral i think there's a massive data gap and we were talking about this earlier um, and without knowing the scale of the problem um i think it's impossible to uh, to really come up with robust and effective solutions to it we can talk about what we think needs to happen in terms of role modeling and networks and mentorship and visibility and things but we really need the data to know um how you know how many people do identify as lgbtq across surgery and are some specialties um worse than others in terms of the diversity that they're attracting um, so the efforts, I suppose, can be focused in in, in helping them with their diversity issues. Um, so and I am aware that certainly within orthopaedics, um, most of the societies in the UK and many actually in America as well are really trying to gather that data um, from their membership at, um, at the moment. As Nick said, it might not always be the questionnaire that you would have picked. Um, but certainly, I, I've been asked to have a look at a couple of of, um, of of questionnaires to see if they would be be suitable. So I think the message is getting out there, and I think um, I, I think certainly the associations are trying to um, grasp the problem. Whether or not they do anything about it once we've got that data, of course, is another is another question, and it will be a much more difficult. Uh, thing to solve, I imagine, at that point. So do you think beyond general diversity questionnaires and knowing the numbers, do we need 
if there well even if there weren't significant numbers is there not a need to capture what experiences are out there so yes you identify but what are your experiences what are your challenges or maybe no challenges and positive experiences um so that either the positive experiences could either be you know used to shine a light and say look you can flourish or we could look at the hurdles and obstacles and say right how do we tackle these going forward um and and how do we do that without networks or champions and so on to push that because what i i don't massively fear but what i think is that it's very easy to then get back a number and go oh we have x percent of lgbtq members and so much percent of women and da, 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 da. and then where what do you do with that well it's a baseline isn't it so that when you i agree with everything you said and all of those interventions are what needs to happen and i think there is a tendency to dwell on the negative experiences that people have had and the problem with doing that is obviously you you end up putting more people off rather than increasing the diversity so i think hearing positive stories is is as important um as 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 highlighting the negatives that we all know happen um but if you don't know where you started from you don't know what change what change or what improvements you're um you're facilitating as 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 part of your interventions i suppose just the same as any kind of research uh, so i don't think that getting questionnaires from all the surgical associations is the be all and end all of 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 it but it's a place to start so that we can see where we're going i think you've got to go beyond surgical societies because you'll only sample people who have continued to stay in it um i want to i want to sample why people have just chosen not to pursue a career in surgery that's a more interesting question and i might find that actually people have gone um the lack of diversity in the surgical community has really been off putting you know um i've not felt included i've not felt supported for whatever reason and it's it would be quite nice to sort of be able to challenge that and say well the perception was that i could never become an orthopedic surgeon because um that doesn't fit you know i didn't want to be in a, in a hostile work environment and then you can reflect that and go actually it's not hostile uh, but i think if we just capture our societies we'll get lots of people who you know succeeded which is great for sort of advertising but i really want to know why people don't follow surgery and how can we make the conditions better and more attractive so that we don't lose talent so you know obviously people are going to make the right decision for them but i want a really diverse workforce i want my consultant colleagues to be a real joy and pleasure to work with you know that's what i really want so that the workforce reflects um what the what the population looks like yeah. and that's that's very important i think I was I was thinking when you asked that question that there was the webinar one International Women's Day where Baroness Kennedy was asked how do you um convince people of, of that something's right when they they're coming from the opposite side and she says I just say to them I make it sound like of course they think like that of course this is what we all do because anyone who doesn't think like that obviously you know they 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 they're not thinking properly 
And in this way, we kind of like got to say to everyone, this is how it is, you know, and if you don't, this isn't, this is, this is how society is reflected. This is, we should encourage surgeons to be part of that and, and to disagree with that is, is not the correct thinking. And as we get more inclusive, compassionate leadership styles that are being pushed through for things like the Five Years Forward Plan and from, from um, HE and NHUCI, hopefully with the leadership changing changes, we'll be able to promote that more and have that, that more inclusive style to encourage people. And that will encourage more diversity in surgery. Yeah. And people might argue, well, OK, if if that person is a great surgeon, then so what? Why do why why do we need? diversity as long as you the people who we have have the skill but in my experience and certainly that has changed over the years as surgery in general has changed the environments that feel uncomfortable as a trainee are also uncomfortable for patients and I've seen you know how LGBTQ patients are discussed um and so on and and the same sort of things that you might feel in an environment be it in your trauma meetings or you know banter in social groups and and so on you get you know obviously not in front of a patient but when discussing patients as groups and at take meetings and things you know things get discussed assumptions get made um you know every gay patient will need a HIV test and all this sort of thing, um, regardless of what their diagnosis might actually be. So it does make a difference to patient care, ultimately, not just to recruitment and future surgery. I think um, it, it has a role in patient care. Well, that has certainly been um, a conversation that's covered many different angles. I mean, very honest. So I'm grateful to everyone tonight for, for expressing your views, being um, happy to be um, honest and to say how it is. Um, we will be continuing with this series of podcasts by talking to trainees to ask them their views um, and issues um, in, this, in the second podcast. Thank you. <laughs>